For part two of our interview series with Ryan Payton, we take a whistle-stop tour of his career and time in Japan. We also begin the discussion on why Shenmue did not capture the mainstream audience that it was intended for upon its release. Right, I'm obviously aware of your time as well to the top of the hour, so... Um, before I dive straight in, I just wanted to give you a congratulations, actually, for Iron Man VR being nominated Best VR Game at the Game Awards. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're really, really looking forward to that event. We know we have some stiff competition with uh, Half-Life Alex and uh, a lot of other good VR games in that category. But uh, we're really honored to be nominated and really, really, really happy to see that. It's really, yeah, you said some big hitters in there. So to be among those very you know, big big name titles i think it's a testament to the job that the team have done on that game oh I think thank you absolutely well done it's well deserved so thank you diving in um i'm going to take you all the way back to high school <laughs> all right <laughs> no way oh yeah all, all the way back to high school um when we spoke previously you mentioned it just just then in your shenmue memory you got to go to japan in high school um was that something you always wanted to do when you were at high school? Was it just an opportunity that that presented itself that you took? Well, I I'll, yeah, I'll go a little bit back further in time, Matt, if you don't mind. Which yeah, is of course. Uh, you know, growing up in suburban America, you know, more in the Northwest um, area. Uh, you know, we lived between Washington State and Oregon State. My dad uh, worked for a variety of big Japanese conglomerates, including uh, Mitsubishi. Um, and uh, in Kobe Seiko, and he would come back uh, from these business trips in Japan, bringing all sorts of treasures from the Far East, uh, you know, like toys and things like that. And I remember just being really amazed by it, uh, and and I always look forward to him coming back home and hearing his stories. And so I think from a very early age, I he kind of whether he knew it or not, he kind of seeded this this fascination uh, into in the Japanese culture in me. And so when I, as I, and and so there's, there was that aspect of it, which may or may not be related to the fact that I was so enamored by super or the the, the original Nintendo and super Mario Mm -hmm. brothers when I saw that. Um, And so I early in an early age also just really instilled like this interest in video games. So it's a very simple crossover, right? When you're interested in video games, there's a lot of Japanese aspects of that. Right. Yeah. So, um, so when I'm, so I'm growing up, uh, you know, really loving uh, Final Fantasy VI. When I saw Final Fantasy VII in the magazines, I, I decided, you know what? I can't wait for the English version of this game. I'm going to learn Japanese. And thankfully, my my the high school that um, I was going to, while it didn't offer Japanese as a language option, the neighboring high school did. So I was able to actually convince the school board to allow me to take my to fulfill my my language course uh, requirements by going to the neighboring high school um, for for Japanese classes. Uh, and I had just like really one ambition, which was I'm going to learn Japanese as fast as I can so I can play Final Fantasy VII before it comes, like by when it comes out <laughs> in Japan, which was a super lofty and in retrospect, really stupid goal because there's just no way that some high school kid, you know, through high, high school Japanese is going to be able to learn as much Japanese in the amount of time uh, to really understand what's going on in the game. But that, that was my that was my goal. And it was a really good goal to have, I think, even though I ultimately failed <laughs> in, in being able to grasp all of Final Fantasy VII when I was in high school. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where everything started. Uh, and then when I was, uh, my dad had another business trip coming, coming up and he asked me if I would 
uh, if I'd be interested in going along with him. So I was able to go with him to the factories that he was working in. Uh, and it just only like uh, fueled more interest I had in the culture and the language. Eventually, I yeah, I went, I did an exchange program when I was in high school uh, to Japan. And that's, I think, where I really got to see like the Yokosuka, uh, like, I didn't go to Yokosuka in particular, but like the things you're seeing in that area of Shemu where you have like uh, like the, the style of housing and like the rooms mm. and uh, the the different uh, like objects that you're, you're finding in all these different Japanese homes, um, the smells, but it's in like, you know, the nameplates outside of the different homes, that level of detail when I was able to, you know, re-experience that in Shenmue um, in the video game. I think that was like where it really transported me back to when I was in high school. Yeah. Not spending time over there. That sounds absolutely amazing, especially for a high school student to go over there and experience that culture at that young age as well. I think it, it, it's, it's an ambition of mine to go to Japan eventually. Mm. Um, as it is, I think for a lot of gamers out there, as you, as you say, if, if you like gaming, Japan's synonymous with it at the, at the end of the day, isn't it? So they, they almost go hand in hand together. And it's interesting to see that I really want to see the culture differences between the United Kingdom and, and Japan and how they do things. I think it's, it's definitely an experience that's on my bucket list, shall we say. Well, um, let me know when you make the pilg pilgrimage, Matt, because uh, I'll try my best to be there. Um, because before COVID hit, I was I was in Japan about every month. Uh, oh, really? Pretty consistently, yeah. So I'd love to show you around and make sure you're taking uh, taken care of. If, we have, if I make it out there, um, then I will absolutely take you off on that offer. That's a really kind offer. Thank you. Of course, you know, and I, I will say one thing about the, the like the rise and recent fall of tourism in Japan. I have a theory, I can't back this up with data, but I have a pretty strong theory that one of the reasons why Japan has become such a popular tourist destination over the past five years, where they've really, it's the, the numbers have skyrocketed. They've done a lot of advertising. They've got the Olympics coming up, but it's mm -hmm. been a very deliberate uh, campaign on the, on, the, on the part of the Japanese government to, to increase uh, tourism as a, as, a, as, a, as a really major industry for the country. And my theory is that a lot of the tourists that are coming through Japan or actually uh, fell in love with that country, fell in love with the country uh, when they're younger through video games and, and anime and manga in particular. And mm -hmm. now that they're old enough to, uh, now they're, they're more affluent, they have more uh, spending dollars, they, they, they want to travel. Um, it's like a, it's like an easy no brainer destination for a lot of people because they have this affirmation for, uh, for the culture that they, um, that where the cultural explosion really happened right in the 80s and 90s right from mm. japan it's that, yeah i'd agree with that actually i think there's a lot of people my sort of my age you know that have experienced video games gone through gone through that evolution and seeing and seeing japan from afar and it's it's an interesting i think anime now with now it's become more westernized in terms of its accessibility mm -hmm. it's only ever it's only fueled that if anything hasn't it i think no totally absolutely okay moving sort of onto your early gaming career you said to me when we we spoke previously you worked with various gaming various outlets across your time so sort of moving into what sort of freelance jobs did you do when you when you sort of started yourself out in the industry what were you doing well i got my start writing video game reviews for my school newspaper back when i was a <laughs> college student and that led to a job um with ziff davis uh with uh, originally was with Xbox Nation magazine. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, I was able to get that job as a freelancer because I just took out clippings of my uh, of my college uh, newspaper 
game reviews and sent that sent those over to to a San Francisco address where uh, Xbox Nation magazine was because I was so excited about I loved Xbox Nation magazine one of my favorite magazines growing up and uh, thankfully they responded to me and they told me that they'd be interested in having a a Japanese correspondent because in my letter to them I told them I was going to be moving to Japan soon to to join the Jet program to learn or to teach English over in Japan oh, yeah. so so that's where um that's where I got my start I started writing articles for Xbox Nation magazine and the nice thing and as you probably remember about uh, the Zip Davis um, network is that it wasn't just Xbox Nation. They had uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly. They had the PlayStation Magazine. They had GMR, and they also had OneUp.com. So it was a pretty natural uh, extension to start writing articles for for those other publications as well. Uh, and um, yeah, and then that's when, like, once you start getting these articles printed and in, in magazines and websites, it's like a lot easier to go get your next gig. So uh, I end up writing for Japan Times, which is like the biggest uh, English-based newspaper in Japan. I end up writing a little bit for Wired magazine, uh, a couple of UK magazines, uh, some UK Xbox magazines as well. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and so yeah, it just kind of really blossomed um, uh, to the point where I had I had more work than I needed really. Oh, excellent! And then, so you see, you and all your writing, you work for these magazines. So, how did the the transition come to working for Konami and the Metal Gear Solid series? How did that sort of manifest itself while you were out there? Yeah, this is a this is a story I, I really like to tell, which is I so I'm, I'm so picture this. I'm in like in a uh, a Japanese fishing village, population of about thirty five thousand people. Uh, I'm in a I'm in a dorm because I'm teaching English at the nearby high school right next door. I have no central heating. Uh, it's there's you know about a meter worth of snow outside my my, my place. Uh, I'm huddled around a kerosene stove and it all sounds like a big like exaggeration, but this is really the truth. And I'm sitting there writing articles at night um, for these different publications I'm working for and I'm teaching uh, English in, in the daytime. And at a certain point, um, I'll save this story for another time, but um, I end up getting in trouble because uh, I end up. Um, uh, uh, this, this sounds awful in a, in a way it kind of is, but I end up like getting in a physical uh, uh, dispute with a, with a, with a student um, who, who uh, touched my, my, my co-teacher very inappropriately during class. And I, and I, um, so I got, I got reprimanded for, for, mm. for being physical with that student. Um, and uh, so I was, uh, I was, I was like, I was told to not come to work for a couple of months while like the school board figured out what to do about me. Um, long story short, I ended up being reinstated, um, and they, they understood why I did that because I was trying to protect my female colleague. Um, but, uh, in the meantime, I realized, you know what, this is probably not what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, and, uh, and so I ended up, uh, quitting and moving to Osaka and, and going to a Japanese school to improve my Japanese. And, uh, meanwhile, just trying to, you know, keep the lights on by and pay for tuition through uh, my continued work as a freelancer. And uh, so what ended up happening was 2005, uh, it was E3's up on the horizon. So I ended up booking a flight to E3. Mm -hmm. I told my editor, James Milky over at oneup.com that I'm going to be there and I'd be willing to write articles for, for oneup.com for any games that wanted me to, to, to check out on the, on the show floor of E3. And he said, sure, he's got a couple of things. And I remember reviewing uh, Okami for DS and, uh, and Beautiful Joe, I think also for DS it was one of my gigs. And they would pay me a little bit of money per, per article and that's okay. And I remember running around the show floor and, and, you know, doing my work and I get this call from James Milky and it's, it's on my phone coming in. I'm like, 
oh, man, he's probably going to have me review other games. I don't know if I want to, I have a lot on my plate and I'm thank God, Matt, that I picked up that phone because there are these moments in your life where it comes down to these small decisions that you make. Mm-hmm. Your life can totally change. And I really did sit there thinking, do I want to answer this phone from my, my boss basically? <laughs> and thank God I did, because if I didn't, I wouldn't be talking to you today. I wouldn't be where I am right now. Um, I picked up the phone and, and, and James Milkey said, dude, 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 I just, I just double booked. I have, I have to, I have to go to interview with Hideo Kojima, but also an interview with Sakaguchi, um, the creator of Final Fantasy. I'm going to oh, take wow. the Sakaguchi uh, interview. If you could run to the Hideo Kojima interview and, and, and take that one for me. And I said, sure, I'd be more than happy to. I, in fact, I just finished Metal Gear Solid three. Um, and so, uh, that was, uh, and I love it. I absolutely love the game. He's like, okay, good. Now go interview him about Metal Gear Solid 3 Subsistence, the the kind of remaster, not the remaster, but the extended version that they were building. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, sure, I'll be more than happy to do that. So I went and did that interview. Um, and during the interview with Hideo, he noticed that I didn't need, I wasn't trying to be that guy, but he noticed that I didn't need the translator, that I understood what he was saying. And I didn't have to wait for the for the translator, Aki Saito, um, to, to, to finish the English translation. I, I understood what he was saying. And so after the interview, um, after Hideo left and I was kind of talking to his translator and he and I became really close friends, uh, Hideo came back from the restroom and was like, you understood everything I was saying in the interview, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I did. And we're speaking in Japanese, obviously. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, why do do you speak with an Osaka accent? I said, (laughs) oh, because I'm like, I'm like, I'm I'm in, I'm living in Osaka right now. He's like, really? He said, well, you know what? I, um, I just let go my English sidekick, basically. Uh, would you be interested in interviewing with me uh, for a job? And I said, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to do that. So, uh, so yeah, I went back to Japan and uh, arranged an interview up in Tokyo to get the job. And uh, I went up there and interviewed. They asked me to come back. And then I came back again, interviewed, came back, I think, a third time. And after by this point, I, had, I was starting to exhaust all my money. Right, because I'd spent all this money going to E3, and then the, the the train trips up and back and forth between Tokyo were becoming pretty expensive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, they told me that even though it seemed like you were a shoe in, we end up we're really sorry you didn't get the job. Oh, so I was very de- I was very de- dejected. I thought it was like a shoe in, right? Because he basically told me, like kind of in a way, almost like told me, you know, I'd be a shoe in for the job. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I'm running out of money. Uh, I just got spit on by a Japanese student uh, from, the neighboring, from the neighboring school because he just started spitting on uh, from, up, from up above, like, from, up, like a, from like a different floor. He was like spitting on all the foreign students because there was a little bit of tension, I think, between the Japanese students and the foreign students, which still continues to this day. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, why the he- what the hell am I doing here? You know? Um, so I thought, okay, screw this. And I, I moved back to the States. Um, and I thought, you know what? You know, I'm moving back in with my parents, mm-hmm. so let's just let's just go let's go full on. Uh, let's go do this. I, I I swear to God, I went to Costco. I bought the Burning Crusade double pack for World of Warcraft and a 48 uh, pack of Mountain Dew, and <laughs> and I said let's do this. And so I just started. I said like I'm just going to go into I'm just going to go into WoW for a while. Right? <laughs> and uh, as I'm trying to get addicted to WoW, it's not going very well. But like five or seven days into this whole thing, I get an email from Konami and they say, Hey, we're terribly sorry, but we made a huge mistake and you actually did get the job. 
can oh. you start can you start like next week or something and i said well that's good news but i'm back in the states and i just uh, spent all my money to get back home and could you at least like you know fund my relocation back to back to japan i said no we're not going to do that so i i, remember, I honestly remember sat, sitting there thinking oh, that's not fair man that's like they made the mistake and i spent mm. all this money mm. that's not fair like do i want to work for a place like that and I remember sitting there, and that's another moment, right, Matt, like where you think about these like micro decisions. And this was a macro decision. And I, I again, thank, thank God I made the right call. And I, I responded and said, okay, fine. I'll cover all the travel expenses, the moving and all that stuff. I'll, I'll come back. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. Wow. That's like, that's really, I really like that story. It's, it's, it's just like you say, it's these pivotal moments, isn't it? That split second decision you make and you don't know, right. do you, until until after the event you look back at those things and you go wow what how different things could be had you not picked the phone up or had you not managed to get yourself back out to japan which i can imagine must have been very difficult to get back out there after they offered you the job Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's like other countless moments in my life i was assume with your life as well where i remember thinking well actually you know what i know this is not about shamu in particular but the the only reason why the company that I have the privilege of running camouflage uh, was able to get the privilege of, of, of making the Iron Man VR game was because I decided to go out with my buds that night um, at E3 mm -hmm. um, many years later. This is like E3 2016. Um, I, I was at my buddy Brian Intahar's place, uh, who's the director of the Spider-Man game. Oh wow! Uh, I was there with with Mark McDonald, who's uh, a production lead of Tetris Effect and Res Infinite, and Luke Smith, who's the game director of uh, of Destiny Two. The four of us love to hang out at E3. We're all hanging out in Brian's place, and we're like, we should probably go out to um, to you know just kind of mingle and socialize. It's all E3. All of our friends are in town. I was tired. The demo for Resident Evil Seven had just come out. I wanted to play that. I didn't want to go out and see people, but they convinced me to go out, and thank God I did because. When we were out there at the JW Marriott lobby uh, is when I met the head of Marvel Games, Jay Ung. We had a conversation about VR. We had a conversation about me talking with him later on about doing a VR game. And sure enough, it was that conversation which led to uh, Iron Man VR. If I had decided to not go out that night, uh, I, I, don't, I don't even know if our company would still be around, quite honestly. So yeah, it's like all these like really might have these interesting decision points, right? Which really can change your life. Yeah, wow. <laughs> It's so it's funny, isn't it? That you think about those, the small decisions that that someone just convincing you to you know, you know what, go on, why not? And it changes your whole path. And as you and, and we just touched on Iron Man VR, didn't we? And it's been nominated for VR Game of the Year. Mm -hmm. So it's right, clearly an excellent decision by all by all means. It was a great decision. But then you can also imagine, like this is like a morbid example, but like oh. You know, like, what if we got in a car accident or something that night? Like, it sh we shouldn't have gone out, right? Mm -hmm. So life, but you, you can't, like, obviously, like, overanalyze it too much. Uh, you'll go crazy. But I think, like, the my, my big takeaway point is, and I tell this to other folks that really want to get into the game industry, for example, is that um, if you have those opportunities, uh, you, you have to, like, make these opportunities. If yeah. you're invited to a game, like a party or an event party, like, go. Be cool. Um but go. It's better. You have a better chance of getting an industry than just sitting at home because you're tired and you don't want to socialize, right? This yeah. was one example. No, I, yeah, completely agree with you. Um, I'll touch on your time at Konami then very sort of briefly. Obviously, you've got the job. Um, you've got yourself back out to Japan. 
talk me through your experiences out there when working with at Konami and, and Metal Gear Solid 4 in particular. It's amazing how much stuff happened in three years' time. I was only at Konami for three years, um, but I have so many stories and so many experiences jam-packed into the roughly you know three 1,000 days I was there. Um, I think if I were to zoom out and give you like the high level of it is that um, from the moment I stepped into that door, I knew that I was working with a very special team. Uh, I knew that they really demanded greatness out of everybody. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I, I, I want, that's exactly where I wanted to be. And, and I don't mean to disparage the other teams within Konami because there were a lot of hard workers at the other teams of Konami, but there was a different feel within the, the Metal Gear team. Uh, and there was a little swagger to us. There was a little cockiness, I'll admit. Um, but there was something really special about that place. And so when I wanted to stay late, which I often did, to work on a project or work out an issue with somebody, uh, it didn't have to, I didn't, they didn't need much convincing. I think we were all really, really dedicated to that project. And I think, you know, despite the fact that the, the public rep, uh, uh, reputation of Metal Gear Solid 4 is somewhat diminished over time, I still think that even the, the most, um, and I understand a lot of the criticism for, for, for the record, but I think if you just look at that game as a product and you see the amount of work that went in there, it's, it's hard to deny that uh, just an amazing, uh, amazing team is behind that, that, the creation of that product. Yeah, and I think it gets an unfair reputation, actually, having played the Metal Gear Solid series through. I really enjoyed Metal Gear Solid 4. Um, I'm glad. Um, I remember, remember playing it, going back to Shadow Moses, mm-hmm. and because I love Metal, the first Metal Gear Solid. I, I'm a, If they remake that on PS5, that would be a day one job for me, really well. <laughs> and I, and I, yeah, I, just, I, I remember, because I did, obviously... I went into it with little awareness of the story around it. Obviously, I played mm. the other games, so when it when it came up, you're going back to Shadow Moses. I, I was I was in absolute heaven. That was I, I I put that up there as a real gaming treasure of mine because I loved the first game so much. It, it was an excellent game, still is an excellent game. But that yeah, I thought I think Metal Gear Solid Four has a a bit of an unfair reputation. Some of it I think yeah you can justify the criticism, but for me on a personal level. I loved it. I enjoyed it, and as far as I was concerned, it was it was excellent. <laughs> That's just one man's opinion at the end of the day. But I'm um, glad that you loved it. Um, a lot of great work went into it. Uh, a lot of love and, and passion. Um, and if you, and I think, uh, and not to spend too much time on Metal Gear Solid Four, but I think if you were to look at the current uh, kind of zeitgeist surrounding that that, that game, it's that. Um, to its own detriment, it was there's perhaps like too much fan surface in it, including mm-hmm. the Shadow Moses moment, right? And I and I, I think that's that's completely fair criticism. I think that throughout that experience, we were consistently thinking about like how can we wrap up this franchise? How can we finish the the the, the Solid Snake saga? Mm-hmm. How can we answer all these on these all these questions, um, even if we didn't know the answer to them at the beginning of the project? So we had to make up a lot of stuff as we went along, and we we had some good answers and some not some good answers. So, uh, but yeah. At the end of the day, it's a it's a really high quality product that um, the team should really um, be really proud of. I think. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd agree with that, and like I said I, I really enjoyed it. I'm going to accelerate in time a little bit um, back to E3 2015. Um, obviously, we know what happened there with Shenmue Three, mm-hmm. um, but we also touched on this last time was the Last Guardian, 
um, which oh, came right. out of obscurity. And for what it was, it, it gone dark for a long, long time. How did you become involved with The Last Guardian and, and where, where did that come from? Well, it started with me shooting Fumito Ueda in the face with a BB gun. <laughs> That's a great introduction. That's how it all started, Matt. Uh, I was working at Konami, and one of the things that they did, which I thought was really smart, was that they did these things, at least in Japanese, they called survival games. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of like Airsoft, right? Where yeah. uh, we would go out on a weekend. Uh, we would go out to a neighboring, kind of more rural area, out in like Chiba Prefecture, Saitama Prefecture. We got the woods. We'd have military fatigues on, and these very realistic-looking uh, airsoft, like BB guns, basically. And we would do these like all-day competitions, right? Where I'm on one team, the other's another guy. The guys on the other team, and we take it really seriously. And it was very, very helpful for me to understand, especially with like such a military sim angle that Metal Gear has, right? Mm-hmm. To understand like the the level of detail that these guys thought about when it comes to you know military simulations. So. Um, but the interesting thing is that they invited other people in the industry to join them. So they would send out, um, I don't know exactly how, but like emails out to um, like the, the Sony team in, in Tokyo, uh, Square Enix. So there's some people from those companies that would join us. And from the Sony team, sure enough, Fumito Ueda is on the bus with me to, uh, to go out to, um, to, to, to the sticks to start playing some airsoft. And uh, I remember just introducing myself pretty casually. He had just shipped uh, The Last Guardian or um, Shadow of the Colossus. Hmm. and uh yeah so we you know we kind of get to know each other but fast forward like three hours later i'm going around the corner i, I i'm surprised because fumito is on the opposite uh opposite team is like in the corner um around like and i i, I kind of just like by pure instincts I, I fire at him um and i unintentionally shoot him in the face with a bb Mm-hmm. Um, and like create like this big welt on his, on his cheek, which thankfully it, it fully, <laughs> fully, uh, healed. Uh, but that was, uh, his introduction to Ryan Payton. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'd like to think that he thinks that things have gotten a lot better since then. Uh, whereas <laughs> and like we kept in touch and we can kind of laugh about it these days, but, um, the rest of the story basically goes that once I left Konami and I was working at, uh, Microsoft, I got a phone call from, um, an agent who uh, now works for United Talent, Talent Agency named um, Ophir Lupu, and he really wanted to represent um, Fumito Ueda. As as we could tell from the from the outside, that you know he was going through a lot as like the development of the Last Guardian was starting to get kind of um, off the rails a little bit. Mm-hmm. So um, I ended up working um, as kind of like a go between between those those two, uh, helping with translation, helping kind of navigate like the different um, you know two, the two cultures and everything as we supported Ueda through the process of um, him creating his own studio, which is now called Gen Design, uh, becoming independent from Sony, and then um, eventually you know, being able to finally finish finish the game. And so from then on, like I became a lot more close with him, and especially on the business side. And mm. so uh, I, now, um, I, I now help run a lot of the business operations over at Gen Design and help negotiate the deal that they end up uh, striking with, uh, with Epic um, for their next game. Uh, okay. And so that was a big thing I was working on for for a long, long time. So yeah, he, he and I were just actually just chatting yesterday. So he's a he's a really good friend of mine. I really love and uh, want to continue to support him. Fantastic. And I'm gonna bring this into Shenmue a little bit. Do, can you compare his working style to Yuzuzuki? Do they have any any similarities, any differences, having worked with both of them? Well, yes, they. I think from the all all three game, Japanese game developers I've had the 
pleasure of working with the close, closest would be Yusuzuki, Hideo Kojima, and Fumito Ueda. They all are quite detail orientated. I think that's <laughs> the one thing you can say across the, the board. Obviously, they all have vision and um, they have an incredible uh, catalog and uh, experience and a lot to learn from uh, those people. But uh, one thing I, I've seen in w- with working with all of them is just like this uh, extreme uh, attention to detail. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about Fumito real quick and then I'll talk about Yu Suzuki, which is like with, with Fumito Ueda, I'll notice like a lot of his feedback, like he'll go and like draw like exactly what he means and what he's like hoping to get out of um, like a very small, seemingly small moment um, or like an animation and how he wants to see it uh, different. Uh, and as the, the level of detail that he's, he's and the guidance he's providing the team is pretty re- remarkable. Um, and then same with Yu Suzuki. I'm sorry if I, if I'm repeating myself, I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but I, uh, I, I have a distinct memory of during Shenmue three, uh, him using like, a, I think we talked about this, like a school teacher kind of like pointer mm, as he's yeah. pointing the things on the screen is like, please move this box. Like, you know, this many units to the left. Um, yeah, we did talk about that last time. And, uh, that's, that's something that, yeah, I think that those two have in common. It's, yeah. It's interesting. Obviously you work with what, what many consider legends of the, of the gaming industry. So it's, it's interesting that they all have that one common facet, that attention to detail, whether they communicate it in very different ways by the sounds of it. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think they do com- all communicate it differently. I think that they, this is like a pretty bold statement, but I mean, we'll see. I had an interesting conversation with, uh, with Yoichi Wada recently, who is the um, former CEO of Square Enix. Mm. And he was telling me that, and from in his opinion, that the Japanese game development scene had some very significant kind of midlife crisis in the mid 2000s, right around the time I was in Japan, um, when it became apparent that the way that games were developed in Japan had to change. And I think that both like all, all the gentlemen we just talked about and many more of them are used to this very top down detail oriented um, approach to leadership yeah. and guidance and game direction. But what ended up happening in the mid-2000s as this explosion of game development, as the explosion of, uh, of Western game prowess is becoming really apparent, um, and the Japanese audience and consumers all both wondering at the same time, what happened here? How did the West get so powerful? And why does it not, why does it not seem like Japan is keeping up with development and the quality, right? Mm. And what he told me is that there was a real big introspective moment that the way that games have been developed in Japan up until that point, where again, very top down, um, had to change. And I think we've seen that happening over time, um, that the Japanese have really uh, embraced a lot of new, a lot of different methodologies uh, to be able to create these large games uh, without this kind of very, very top down approach. Uh, and I think that, uh, I think for a game like Shenmue 3, it doesn't have to do that because I think it's condensed. I think the team knows, and, and or at least definitely Yu Suzuki knows when he needs to build. So I don't, I don't think that he's kind of transformed his business into like the more um, like more flat and distributed uh, model that that other Japanese developers have done. But I've seen uh, you, uh, Fumito like changes his change, uh, his style a little bit. I, I definitely know I, I know that uh, Hideo Kojima has changed his style as well. It's interesting uh, going back into sort of like you say the mid two thousands. It's Western games. <sighs> For years, and I remember growing up, and it was always Japan got everything first. Mm-hmm. They got all the cool games before before the West did. So I remember, 
when the, when it exploded over in the West, it, I think it took everybody by surprise, actually, because it, it was unexpected. Oh, totally. And I, 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 I don't know what happened with, with Japan, whether they got left behind or whether it was a, whether it was a shock to the system necessarily. I, I don't know. But it, it games, I think games became very much a Western thing. It became cool to be a gamer. And it, it got traction. Um, and I think, certainly from my point of view as, as a, a lad growing up and then into adulthood, when I was growing up, gaming was a bit geeky. It was a bit, yeah, you sit in your bedroom with a couple of mates, sure. you play your games and that's it. Whereas now, if you look at it, you look at the, sort of the mass multiplayer games that are available, they're all westernised. They're all the westernised mm. products. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see how that's, how that's developed. And I think... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but from my personal opinion, the market of Japan now is actually with that creativity that is out there. I think there's a there's a big, there's a big hole in 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 some in some respects in the gaming industry now, where there's those risks to be taken in terms of creativity and doing something different. And it's something that I think we were very lucky to grow up with, considering we grew up through the era of, of the Genesis, the Dreamcast, mm. uh, the N64, just just some examples there, don't you think? Yeah, the like level of creativity that they had um, leading up to those, those the, through those consoles, right, Matt, it was, it was unbelievable and really inspiring. And uh, yeah, there was something lost in like the mid two thousands. Um, and and I think the the big that that sea change that you're describing, it's mm. it's, it's obviously like a amalgamation of many many things. But I think if you were to point to one thing, you had to point to one thing. I think what you point to is rocks is Rockstar and GTA. Yeah. That I think is like the biggest turning point was that when the Japanese audience and the world saw what they were doing with GTA three and beyond the scale, the scope of that game. And it not only that, but it made games cool mm. because it was a game where you're doing all this kind of adult stuff, if you will, some of it pretty juvenile, if you look back at it, but <laughs> still seem cool. Like you're not supposed to do it. It's like, it was kind of like it's, 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 it's GTA three is like the, 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 the rock and roll record that you're not supposed to have. Um, you know for like for our parents uh, era right yeah um, and uh yeah i think that was a big 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 turning point for the industry okay so my, my final question because i know we're just about to hit the top of the hour um so in terms of obviously the original two shenmue games and the sort of the lull in, in in japanese development and then obviously the booming western development why do you think from from your point of view that Obviously, that there are issues with the Dreamcast and and the fact, obviously, its life cycle ended early. But why do you think Shenmue itself, as a franchise, maybe didn't take off as well as it could have done, and as eventually get ended up getting sort of a cult status that it did? I'd be curious if uh, to know your answer uh, about this, man. I'm really sorry. I don't have enough, I, don't, I don't have more time. I should have I should have allotted more. I'm sorry about that. Um, no, not at all. Not at all. Very curious what you think, but I, I think I could distill it down to one thing. Mm. Um, the reason why Shimu didn't take off as well as I think we all hoped and dreamed it would. And that is, I don't think it, as much as I love it, right? Like, I think your audience knows I love Shimu, and mm. I think I've proven it through a lot of the actions I've done, right? Uh, I don't think it fulfills the promise of the virtual fighter RPG. I think okay. the, the, pro the end product, as much as I love it, is... 30 or 70% life simulator and, mm. and story and 30% maybe virtual fighter combat. Uh, whereas, and it should have probably been more like 50, 50 or 
40, 60 in terms of the ratio. Mm. Uh, I just, I don't think it had enough action and, and virtual and amazing virtual fighter combat to really carry the game forward uh, for most players. Now, nerds like me and you, Matt, and, and a lot of your audience, no offense, like we can <laughs> all agree that we're all big, big nerds, it's all good. I think we love that attention to detail and that, simu- that Japan simulation and the story and everything, right? But I think if you're talking about the mainstream, I don't think it had enough of that of that red meat, if you will, um, to really move it into like the millions and millions of units sold that it needed. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting answer. Actually. I think if we pick that up next time. Yeah, we should. I'd be very interested to um, sort of take that discussion a bit further forward, actually. I think you raised some very interesting points. And I think I'd be interested to raise it with the fan base, actually, outside of here and see what their thoughts are around it. Because I think there, that there is a conception around the Dreamcast, obviously, it, it died out way too soon. Um, sure. There's a lot of issues there around it. But I, I do wonder if it's, it's, a, it's a Shenmue franchise, whether we've looked in, inward enough as to why. And I think you raised some very interesting points there around the content. And we love Shenmue, and I'm, it's never, you know, it's never going to change that at all. I, I love that game, both of them, all three of them, in fact, for what they are. Right. But right. it's it's how you then translate that to a wider audience, isn't it? Right. And I, yeah, I'd be curious what your audience thinks with the with with the idea. And I mean, no offense, I'd have to put an asterisk next to the to the to the um, to the results because. By definition, I think your your audience and the Shenmue Dojo fan base is is the audience that was captured in a rapture by mm-hmm. this franchise. Yeah. Um, we're we're the outliers. Like we're not think we don't represent the millions of people that no. saw the reviews and mm-hmm. the materials and the and the marketing and everything and just was like, yep, that's not for me. 